Welcome to the 62nd episode of the Two Tankers and a Cat podcast. This is Russell. Well, here's the thing, folks. Charlie busted a tooth trying to open a dang beer bottle, Cap, and now he's having to have dental surgery. I know, I know, only Charlie. <laughs> so I'll be doing this episode with Lightning the Cat. So if you hear any bumps, meows, or lightning rubbing the microphone, that, that would be our mascot. Also, we'll be answering a few messages and shout outs at the end of the show. So stay tuned and we will jump right on into this show. Today, I'll be talking about the BMP-1. The first foreign tank I saw was actually the BMP-1 at one of the museum trips that Charlie and I has taken in the past. And I was really impressed by its design. The BMP-1 from the BMP family, which stands for Boyeva Machina, or literally Infantry Fighting Vehicle, is certainly one of the most famous IFVs worldwide, creating a stir in the West when it appeared. It was to enter service in 1966. I want to make a little note here, which was the same year that Charlie was born. Wow, he's old, didn't he? <laughs> Thinkers in the Soviet Army had the idea at least to test a hybrid between an APC and a tank, which was to become the very concept of an infantry fighting vehicle, a unique creation of the Cold War. Not really a light tank nor an APC, this was a new category for a traditional tactical assignment and a successful one, which indeed nailed the coffin of the light tank and added an upper level to the APC genre. The task of designing the BMP was assigned to Pavel Isakov, who was the head of the design bureau of the Cheshelbinsk tractor plant. famous plant was founded in 1933, and it was seated south of the Ural Mountains, well beyond reach from the Germans in World War II. It did indeed mass-produce the KV-1 and T-34, which contributed to halt the Panzers and cranked up thousands of KV-85s, IS series, T-3045s, as well as the Su-85 tank hunter. Specifications were drawn up in the late 1950s already, and there were questions about the nature of the vehicle, either wheeled or tracked, or even hybrid. They specified a good speed, good armament, and crucially, the ability for all squad members to fire from within the vehicle, whereas infantry had to dismount from traditional APCs. Protection had to be superior, including against similar rank weaponry, 20 to 23 millimeter caliber autocannons across the frontal arc and a collective NBC protection was also already envisioned. The whole arrangement was as follows. The driver was at the front left-hand side with his own hatch above and three TNPO-170 periscopes covering the frontal arc. The central one could be swapped for an active binocular, the TVNO-2 infrared sight. In addition, he is given the TNPO-350B raised periscopes used for driving when the trim vane is erected, and that's actually used when swimming. For self-defense, his right side opening hatch is given a pistol port. Behind him was the commander with his own two-folded hatch, the upper half being lifted and used as a shield. He too had three vision blocks. He has a removable OU-3GA2 slash OU-3GK infrared searchlight, 
Ridge at a range of about 400 meters or 440 yards, which is coupled with a day-slash-night TKN-3B binocular sight with a 5 by magnification. The TNPO-170 vision devices have all cleaning and heating systems. The commander is in charge of the R-123M radio and giving commands. The gunner took his place in the seat right of the gun's breech. He has easy access to ready rounds stored around him on the slope wall cradles, and the turret traverse is electric, but with a manual backup. There's a fume extraction system. The gun's breech is low in the turret, therefore it has a dead zone over the commander's hatch, the searchlight being in its way. Current practice was to leave the gun raised enough to avoid it. His main sight is the dual-mode day-slash-night 1PN22M1 image intensifying monocular periscope, which had a 6 by 6 by 7 magnification vision range, and it varies from about 400 meters or 440 yards to 900 meters or 980 yards. This is completed by a set of four periscopes and an optical rangefinder. In addition, the OU-3GK infrared or white light searchlight can be fitted to the gun. This is a stadiometric range sight replaced later by a 1PN22M2 sight in the 1970s, which allowed the use of the OG-15V HE frag ground. The range scale was raised to 1,300 and 1,600 meters, or 1,420 to 1,750 yards. It's actually some pretty interesting stuff. And now I want to talk about the protection of the BMP. The famous wedge-shaped welded rolled steel hull seen from profile did not tell of a wide vehicle. The vehicle is actually 2.94 meters wide and 6.7 meters long. And it's set quite low to the ground, only about 1.88 meters off the ground which means troops can easily climb over the vehicle. This was seen as a crucial advantage during the Afghan war as the fear of mines made the troops preferring to stay above the vehicle rather than inside. With its low, flat, and weak belly, the BMP was indeed an easy prey for these devices. Armor protection ranged from about 6 millimeters to 33 millimeters or point. 24 inches to 1.3 inches, with the 33 millimeters actually being the main gun mantlet. The frontal arc being able to withstand almost 23 millimeter autocannon AP rounds. The sides of the vehicle being resistant against 12.7 millimeter heavy machine gun rounds. And the rear and roof of the vehicle uh, was resistant to small arms fires and shrapnel. Furthermore, the high angle beak made it likely to deflect all sorts of rounds, and on top of that, the upper nose was protected by the added layer of the trim vane. This level of protection, however, did not prove immune to the 25mm or .98 inch M242 Bushmaster autocannon armor-piercing rounds. Total weight was about 13.2 ton, or 13 long tons, when it was actually battle-ready, which was about a quarter of a standard main battle tank weight at the time. The BMP-1 crew protection consists of a collective chemicals, weapons, biological agents, and nuclear fallout threats lining, sealing, and by an air infiltration system and overpressure system. However, there was no air conditioning or air cooling system, making the crew compartment's conditions unbearable in hot climates and forcing it to open hatches when idle or moving, which also weakened the protection against shrapnel and small arms fire in ambushes from vantage points higher up. 
For active protection, the BMP was given only the possibility of creating a thick white smoke cloud by injecting a vaporized diesel fuel into the exhaust manifold. Many vehicles modernized in the 1980s were given banks of smoke grenade dischargers. Now I want to touch on the mobility of the BMP a little bit. The standard protection version had the UTD-20 V6, which had six V-shaped cylinders. It was a four-stroke diesel engine, which had an airless injection and water-cooled and multi-fuel, and it had a 15.8 liter capacity. This particular engine developed 300 horsepower at about 2,600 revolutions per minute, which gave a power-to-weight ratio of about 22.7 horsepower per ton. Top speed on the flat ground was about 65 kilometers per hour or 40 miles per hour on the road, and it had a top speed of about 45 kilometers an hour or 28 miles per hour off-road. Another little interesting tidbit on the speed, it actually had a speed of about 7 to 8 kilometers per hour or 4.3 to 5 miles per hour when it was swimming. The driver fatigue is much reduced by a power-assisted manual gearbox with five forward and one reverse gear. Suspensions consisted of individual torsion bars with hydraulic shock absorbers on the first and sixth road wheels. The drive sprockets are at the front, idler at the rear, and the tracks are supported by three return rollers per side. The six rubber-clad road wheels per side are of the standard stamped steel hollow model, mass-produced and shared by many other Soviet vehicles. The upper part is protected from snow and dirt by rigid side skirts. The field performances of the vehicle are as follows. It was able to climb a 60% grade, a 30% side slope, and 0.7 meter vertical steps, and cross a 2.2 meter wide trench, and of course, ford any kind of water surface due to floating amphibious capabilities. In that area, it is helped by its tracks in motion and some buoyancy produced by the hydrodynamic fairings on the track upper side covers as well as road wheel arms with air chambers and hollow stamped road wheels. The shape itself of the hull and the trim vane when erected also have good characteristics, although the BMP was never intended for sea landing operations. It could only cope with 25 centimeters or 0.82 feet high waves when swimming at sea. Preparations include closing tight the rear doors, thanks to an internal maximal capacity of 462 liters. Operational range is about 600 kilometers or 370 miles on flat surfaces. With the versatility of a multi-fuel feeding, accepting either regular diesel, but also winter DZ fuel, and even TS aviation standard high-octane kerosene. The size and weight of the BMP-1, however, made it only air-transportable tactically by heavy-duty carriers like the Li-76 and possibly lifted up by the Mil-6 helicopter, but it was not air-droppable. I now want to move on to the firepower of this amazing vehicle. The core of a good IFV is certainly its armament, and the BMP was well-conceived in this chapter. With a conical turret, inspired by the one seen on the PT-76 light tank, and also shared by the BMP-1. It was out of the question to give this vehicle a standard tank turret due to its weight and inherent structural problems, and the light one-man turret was designed to operate a tailored 73mm 2A28 Grom low-pressure smoothbore semi-automatic gun. 
There's a 40 round magazine which is located at the base of the turret ring surrounding the gunner. At an elevation of about 3 degrees, it is certainly not intended to fight helicopters, but only light vehicles and fortified objectives. But only light vehicles and fortified objectives. The gun breech is conceived around an autoloader fed from the mechanized ammunition conveyor magazine, but it can also be manually reloaded. This was apparently not very successful and often removed after delivery. Furthermore, in 1974, a new ammunition was introduced, which can only be loaded manually. Standard projectiles are the same PG-15V used on the SPG-9 infantry light recoilless gun. The main AP projectile is the PG-15V heat round, which can penetrate up to 280 to 350 millimeters of steel armor, while the modernized PG-9 was found able to penetrate up to 400 millimeters but only in an effective range of about 500 meters or 550 yards. Against soft targets and infantry support, the OG-15V high explosive was only supplied from 1974 on. Secondary armament was comprised of a right-mounted coaxial 7.62 millimeter PKT light machine gun, and it was supplied with about 2,000 rounds of ammunition and can use tracers to aim the main gun. It was not stabilized, which reduced the first hit capability and negates any effectiveness when in motion. For the long-range defense bubble, the BMP relies on a single ATGM mounted on a launching ramp above the main gun mantlet. The first used and produced in mass was the 9M14 Malutka, later replaced by the Malutka M and P in the 1970s. It gave the vehicle an a main battle tank killing capability at a 3,000 meter maximal range. These missiles can defeat 400 millimeters of steel armor using a heat warhead. Four of these are carried inside complete with their own launching ramp between the turret and the hull, which means that in battle the crew needed to reload it exposed to enemy fire. Now let's actually get to some of the good stuff and talk a little bit about its combat history. The BMP-1s were actually used in the Yom Kippur War in 1973. The first engagement of the vehicle occurred on October 8th of 1973 when the Syrian and Egyptian army, both which just purchased hundreds of the BMP-1s, engaged them against the Israeli army. Syria only engaged about 100 vehicles on the front line. The remainder was used by Hasef al-Assad's guard, Many of the Syrian vehicles engaged on the Golan Heights were lost due to inexperience of the crew. The short range of the gun was also criticized, and the ATGM was difficult to aim accurately. However, both the Egyptian and Syrian crews praised its speed and agility. In particular, it was found capable of crossing the reputed impassable northern Kantara salt marshes. Many lessons were learned with the BMP-1 that was... Pretty good lessons for Soviet engineers, although for USSR itself, the real test came with the war in Afghanistan. During the Angolan Civil War, BMP-1s were used by Angolan and Cuban units against South African forces. More than 300 light AFVs of various types were delivered to Angola in the period of 1975-1976 and proved themselves quite useful. A few Czech BVP-1s had also been spotted in action with Angolan and Cuban forces. Six BMP-1s were destroyed, 
plus six others captured by SADF at Cuido Quanaval. And the captured BMP-1s have been thoroughly evaluated. A modernization package was even designed with the IST Dynamics Unmanned Multi-Weapon Platform for export. During the Iran-Iraq War, BMP-1s were purchased in quantities by Iraq with the first batch of 200 vehicles in 1973 from USSR. And 750 more vehicles apparently Czech-built and delivered from 1981 to 1987 for a total of about 950 BMP-1s that were active in the Iran-Iraq conflict. These were useful to deal with Iranian massive human waves, but showed vulnerabilities that were fixed with later upgrades prior to the Kuwaiti invasion. BMP-1s were also used during the Gulf War in 1991, in addition to unknown numbers of Chinese Type 86s, which was a cheaper copy of the BMP-1, Iraq had some 1,500 BMPs of all types in the inventory by 1990. At that stage, two variants were developed. An up-armed variant called Sodom-1, first revealed in the 1989 Baghdad Exhibition. It had locally manufactured oblique armor panels on the sides of the hole and turret, and looked like the Soviet-Afghan variant, the BMP-1D. Other panels installed also protected the nose and underbelly against mines. However, the overload was not compensated by an engine upgrade, and the vehicle was consequently never produced, contrary to the second variant, the Sodom II, which received rubber side skirts, additional lighter armor, on the upper hull sides in an ATU box. The few produced were given to the Republican guards. There was also an armored ambulance conversion from 1985, which was turretless and had a stretched rear section. In 1991, the showdown with U.S. forces placed these 1,800 BMPs against about 2,200 M2 Bradleys and M3 AFVs. To take word for word, Bradley Crews' impressions We've butchered these things left and right. During the Battle of Medina Ridge, a single Bradley knocked out a first BMP with just three 25mm chain gun rounds and two with nine in a 60-second firefight with various Iraqi Republican IFVs. On February 26, 1991, the American 7 Corps engaged several units north of Kuwait, knocking off 13 BMP-1s as well as 13 T-72s, and also knocking out four Abram tanks. However, in the Battle of 73 Easting, an Iraqi BMP-1 knocked out a U.S. M2 Bradley with its 73mm gun. The first round bounced off the armor, but the second penetrated beneath the tow ATGM launcher, killing the gunner and wounding the rest of the crew. On March 2, 1991, when dealing with the breakout attempt from the Iraqi Republican Guard Division, U.S. 24th Armored Division Bradleys were fired upon until AH-64 Apaches were called to help, destroying 49 BMPs, among many others. The remnants of the IFVs were still active in the 2003 war in Iraq. About 434 are in service nowadays with the Iraqi New Army and its first mechanized brigade based in Taji. Some of these are former Greek-Ost NATO standardized vehicles in Germany. The United States even has and used the BMP-1s. We had four ex-Iraqi captured BMP-1s in the Gulf War, preceded by 36 in 1987 from Chad and 22 more from Germany. These were used in the OPFOR role 
or for target practice, and the remainder joined the private market, museums, and collections. So we had almost a total of 62 of them, and like our history with tanks, we used most for target practice. This actually brings us to the second point of the podcast today, um, why we do what we do. You've actually heard Charlie and I beg for the U.S. government to save and restore the few historical tanks we have here in the United States. When we went to Fort Benning and met Rob Kogan, he showed us the tanks rusting away and the ones still waiting to be sent to him that are just still rusting away too. So we really want you, our listeners, to buy books from friends of the show like Craig Moore. We also beg of our listeners to actually do some searching online and and support some of the museums out there. Um, You can buy books and cool little tank gadgets from their online stores, and this actually helps support these museums. Um, Even if it's a little toy tank or something for your kids or grandkids, we just ask that our listeners out there actually get involved, and it's your effort to save real history You can go see and touch someday, knowing your support is actually saving these wonderful tanks. I mean, every day, tanks, pieces of military history are are actually being scrapped every day. And I'm not telling you, it's very, very sad. It really is. So get out there, do your part, and support some of these great museums that do a great job of refurbishing some of these tanks. And, And hopefully, you can support them even further by getting out there and and hopefully get to visit some of these museums so you can actually see military history right there in front of your eyes. So that actually brings us to the next section of the show. Got a few shout-outs here that I want to do. Once again, we want to apologize to Tony Rouse's wife down in New Zealand. Tony's been huge with our fan club down there. Thanks, Tony, for actually giving us another message there through Facebook. Tony writes that he's actually been hiding from the missus after what we said about him there in the last episode. And he says she's on the warpath again. <laughs> Hopefully, Tony, you survived the, the missus again. And we'll try to do better in the future, uh, not making her as mad as we do sometimes. <laughs> also want to shout out to Craig Moore again. He sent us a message with actually some pretty neat pictures of the AMX-30 and the AMX-13 that he has found in some of his research, and we'll likely put those on Facebook, these pictures that he sent us, and, and kind of put a link to that particular episode. We've already talked about the AMX-30 and the AMX-13, but yeah, these, these pictures go along with that. Pretty neat. Thank you, Craig, for sending that along and, and being so supportive of the, of the podcast. I mean, you have no idea what that means to us here on this end. That kind of does it for the the message is received. Um, if you folks out there have any suggestions for podcasts, have anything you want to send along that pertains to any of the tanks we've talked about in any of our past podcasts or anything that's coming up, uh, let us know. You can always contact us through Two Tankers and a Cat Facebook page, through Messenger, or send us a message through that. You can email us at Two Tankers and Cat at gmail.com, Two Tankers and Cat at gmail.com. Or you can visit our website at uh, com. So get out there. Let us know what you want to hear about. We will always read the messages. And, and we will usually use you guys' comments and, and suggestions for future episodes. Next thing I kind of want to cover is huge shout out to our patrons through our Patreon program. Huge shout out to Kim and Eric Shear. Thank you for 
supporting us through our Patreon program. Huge shout out to Riley, Riley VB. Thank you, man. Razbaz18, he's still a huge supporter of the show. Thank you, Razbaz. Evan, thank you, man. I mean, you've been with us since August of last year and very much appreciated. Really is. Huge shout out to Antonio Bernarda. Thank you, Antonio, for your continued support. Slam Jammington. Hey, Slam. Thank you, man. That means a lot to us that you're still supporting us. Alejandro Martinez. Thanks for your support. ODS Thero. He's been with us for, oh, wow. July 2019. Yeah, July 2019. So, And Rick Schmidt. Thank you, Rick, again for all your continued support. It means a lot, man. Every little bit helps. And like we've talked about in the past and we'll continue to talk about in the future, we've got some pretty big plans with with the money that folks send us. And I think it's going to be an interesting year and excited to see where all of it goes. And I've already been pretty excited about where we've came from and how far we've came. And, And to me, it just keeps getting better and better. Like I said, thank you all for your support and Anybody else interested in our in supporting our show and podcast, check us out on uh, patreon.com. Do a search there for Two Tankers and a Cat podcast and check out our pledge levels anywhere from about 2 to $2 to 8 bucks a month. I mean, whatever you folks can handle on giving us, every little bit's appreciated. Well, anyway, this concludes this podcast. As always, happy tanking and Have a great week.